Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bulletproof Women. I'm your host Gwen. We're on the brink of summer this year and hopefully things around us are beginning to inch closer to our normal lives. But we're definitely not out of the woods yet and we all still need to do our part. I started this podcast in 2019 with the hope of giving a safe platform to women I know to be able to talk about their difficult life experiences with no judgment and complete respect. I do believe that everyone has a compelling story to share. I encourage all of you to share them for two reasons. First, it is therapeutic in many ways to openly talk about experiences that you may have kept hidden for so long. And second, there is always someone somewhere out there who will hear your story maybe 2 days from now, maybe 2 years from now, and they might be comforted in knowing that they're not alone. The year 2020 has been pretty tough so far, but we are tougher. Just like my next guest, Melissa, who has so bravely shared with us some of the most difficult and stressful experiences that a woman and a mother can go through. Now, due to the strict social distancing measures we are all observing, Melissa and I recorded this episode on Zoom. So, my sincere apologies in advance for the audio editing that I could not do to remove a few scratches and glitches here and there during her story. But don't worry, it's not that bad either. I will be sharing Melissa's experience in two parts. Today's episode is part 1. Motherhood is so hard. But before we begin, I need to state a cautionary note here. Firstly, both parts of Melissa's experience cover the life of her children. To protect their identities, we will be keeping their names anonymous and will only refer to them by their initials. Secondly, Melissa's story today is about the hardship she's faced dealing with a rebellious teen, the pain of watching her child make one mistake after another, and the anguish of feeling helpless while this happens. This experience and content is quite heavy and may be difficult to hear. For some, it may trigger painful emotions. Listener discretion is advised. A few years ago, I remember watching a sort of spoof video where a few candidates were conferencing in for a job interview. The position was called Director of Operations. The recruiter explained that this job called for the most ridiculous job requirements, like only eating, resting or sleeping when the associate did so, and tending to the associate's every single need all day long. There were no breaks, no vacations, no overtime, and the work was 24/7. When asked how much was the salary for this position, to their surprise, they were told that this position paid nothing. zero all the interviewees blankly told the recruiter that this job was inhuman insane and not possible to do little did they know it was a fake interview it was later revealed that this inhuman insane and impossible job was actually done by billions of people worldwide the real job title mom yes mothers We are capable of the most complex and deepest ranges of emotions and physical capabilities. 
Our well-being and emotions are directly linked to the state of our children. If they are happy, we are happy. If they are in trouble, we lose sleep. If they are hurt, we are in agony. How far can a mother's love and patience be pushed? Can it ever break? Most of us may be fortunate to never be tested on this. But what happens when the ones who test us the worst on this are our own children? This is the tough experience my friend Melissa would like to talk about. So let me start by saying thank you, Melissa, for opting to talk about this topic. You've been through so many experiences and you've chosen something that I think is the most difficult one to talk about. So first of all, thank you very much. And I'd like to begin by asking you, why did you think that this was something you would like to share with everybody today? I think out of all of the life experiences that I have in my life, this is the most untalked about topic or life situation that people, they don't hear much about it. I think awareness needs to be created about these things. There's uh, stigmas and a lot of times families hide this stuff. I think people need to understand and be aware that, uh, you know, this might be happening in a lot of families and you're just not hearing about it. It's also therapeutic for me because <laughs> it's something I've never, uh, since it's happened, I've never talked about it. So this is the first time that I'm, that I'm, that I'm actually going back into my memory vault. <laughs> Melissa is a wonderful, tenacious and caring woman who doesn't back down when challenged. She's a happily married woman and mother of two. She's passionate about her family, work and community. I've known Melissa professionally for over a year now and I'm happy to call her my friend. She's had a rewarding career in hospitality, currently owns a successful business has won several awards for excellence and is a well-recognized community member. To the outside person, it may seem like Melissa's life is a smooth ride now, but she had some serious bumps to overcome to get here. One of the most difficult of them was the trouble she faced bringing up her rebellious teenage daughter, V. It all started soon after she decided to divorce her abusive ex-husband when her children, V and M, were nine and six years old. Um, I was very, very depressed. I went through a severe depression for about a year. Thankfully, thank God, with my faith and the help of the community and some community programs that I got hooked up with, I didn't get, get consumed for more than a year, but it consumed me to the point where my children were seven and nine. And she was nine, she was the older one, and she would be the one to take her brother to school. She would be the one to get up and make their breakfast and take them. He was in kindergarten, so he might've been a little less than seven, he might've been six. And she would walk them to school. Thankfully, we lived in the front of the schools. They'd leave and I'd be in my pajamas. They'd come back at three o'clock and I'd still be in my pajamas. I would have probably brushed my teeth, maybe have a coffee. I don't think I used to eat proper lunches. I had lost my job. At that point, I was, you know, a single parent raising the two of them. I had another good, very good job and I lost my job. The company had downsized. And uh, my unemployment did not kick in right away. So I remember having the last, I think it was like $400 to my name. I had spent all the money I earned from when we sold the house and all that. Um, and I now moved into a basement apartment. And, you know, I didn't want my kids to feel different, you know, than what they were used to. 
right? So I spent, I went to New York, we went to Detroit, we traveled, we went, I did not stop. I still bought, you know, a lot of clothes, nothing changed, nothing changed. We were enjoying, I was enjoying summer with my kids. I wasn't working. So as a blessing, as a positive to that situation, I was able to spend a whole summer with my kids that I've never been able to do before. When summer was done, so was my money. So come September, they start school and I'm down to like the last, it was like the last four or $600 in my account. And my rent was $900. And it was about two weeks to the end of the month that I needed to pay rent. And I remember, I remember that was an emotion I can remember very distinctively. I would get up every morning. I would go on the computer after they went to school. I'd apply for jobs, you know, do the typical stuff, fill out my standard EI form, but no money was coming in, even though I was filling out the EI, they would say I wasn't approved. I wasn't approved. So that's why the money I had to my name, I had like, I spent in that summer, I spent about $17,000 in one summer. Like I made my kids, but money did not make them happy. And I didn't realize that. Right. But I, again, I wanted to make sure they had the normal life. So everything I had, I spent it. So then, you know, I'm looking at my, my, my bank account and I'm feeling very, you know, emotional. Oh my God, I have to pay rent coming up. Um, I'm applying for jobs everywhere and I can't get a job. I'm having interviews. I'm getting to the point where I could feel I'm getting the job and then I'd get the letter or the call. Thank you so much. You know, you didn't make the cut. We chose someone else. And I was like, what again? Melissa's state of depression got only deeper with every interview rejection notice she received. With no money, two kids and no job, she was desperate for someone to help her in any way possible. But the only option that came to Melissa's aid was religion. Um, in the religion that I, that I follow, we believe in spiritual interventions and uh, I stopped even going to the temple and I was very involved in my temple, very spiritual. They knew me there very well. I stopped going. I, they didn't see me for a number of months. <clears throat> and so I think someone had called to ask, like, what's going on? They're not seeing us, you know, not realizing I'm in this major depression. Somehow I would have spoken to my godfather and I said, I'm applying for these jobs. Nothing is happening. I'm getting so close. I could feel they're already talking about what the schedule is going to be like, what the money is like. No one talks about that unless you know you're almost in the, in the job. And so he had said that um, he had done like a astrology reading. And I was told that there was some spiritual intervention and that was blocking my way for getting a job. And it was a spiritual intervention to attack my mind and my mental well-being. And, and it was happening. So why would I not believe that? Um, you know, I know there's people that don't believe in those things, but I'm a very firm believer because I had proof and, and I was living through it. So his recommendation was very simple. I had to every day do a prayer and it was um, like, kind of like what you would compare with a rosary. So I'd had to say these spiritual mantras 108 times every single day for 21 days. And so I did it. And then after I did it, he, we would check in again and he's like, nope, another 21 days. All of my religious figurines of my God, I wake up one morning and they're on the floor broken. So it was things you'd see in a movie. It was very eerie things you would see in a movie. So, you know, I tell the priest this happened and he'd say, okay, another 21 days. So I did that for a total of 63 days. Every morning I'd wake up and I'd have to chant this um, mantra for 108 times. During that time, Children's Aid came into my life because my ex-husband had called Children's Aid to make false claims that my kids are getting abused. I'm at this point where I'm at the lowest of low in my life. I'm not even able to take care of my kids. 
and you're going to tell me I'm, I'm, I'm physically hurting my children. Um, it was just a way to get back to me. And so anyways, they came out and it was that day I, you know, in talking to the child protection worker and the kids came home and she interviewed the kids, she realized that I was depressed in the situation I was in and she gave us some resources, which I tapped into. And that's, that turned things around for me. There was a support group with other people. And when I went to that support group, I think I went to it uh, maybe three or four times. And when I went to it, I heard other women that were were well-to-do, like you would not even believe how wealthy some of these women were. And they were in a situation worse than I was. And that gave me hope. There was a woman there that had emphysema and she was pretty much on her dying bed and she was struggling. She was struggling with many different situations in life. And this, this helped me out of my depression and, and started making me turn things around. And then I got a job. So I started working again. With her strong religious faith, and encouragement from support groups, Melissa was able to pull herself out of her depressive state. But after all that effort, Melissa found herself going from the frying pan into the fire. So fast forward now to, um, let's say, three years later, we're living, we moved up from the basement and now we're renting a house and I'm building. I'm working again, you know, I'm building my career again, I'm starting to earn money. I want to repurchase a home and, and build my life. So mentally, I'm starting to be in a much better place. The kids and I are doing okay. And I'm dating at this point. I'm dating, um, you know, and so not knowing that she's looking that I chose to date versus be, you know, that they were, my kids were also going through their own feelings. And I didn't, I didn't acknowledge that. I was going through my own depression. I didn't want my kids to see me cry. I didn't want my kids to see me. So I hurt silently, you know, not knowing that they're feeling abandoned when I'm not abandoning them. In my mind, I'm dealing with my emotions for them not to see. During the time that I was divorced with my kids, um, when I went through depression and all that, their biological father had access. He had access to the children. So we had alternate weekends. He would have them on a Friday to a Sunday every other weekend. And then they lived with me full time. They would be going in suitcases on a Friday and be dropped back off on a Sunday. When he had them, I started dating about within six months of when him and I had split. So the weekends that they were gone, I'm by myself. And when someone would think your kids go away and you're having a chance to be romantic, that is not the case. Your heart is empty. You're just so sad until they come back on a Sunday and you know they're okay. And their father was a very heavy drinker. He was also a very a chronic marijuana user very chronic. And so I would get calls from mutual friends of ours that he's showing up with the children on the weekends when he had them at their home with bears in the truck. And he's coming to their house and they're feeling a little bit in the middle because they were our mutual friends and now we're split. And he's showing up with the children, using the children as a way into their house but he was drinking and they would say, you know, I don't know what to do. He's, you know, had a lot to drink. He's got the children. So I was scared for the children's life because the kids would come back on a Sunday and tell me everything that was going on. Their entire time with him would be him asking about what's your mom doing? What's your mom and her new boyfriend doing? And so, you know, they'd come back on a Sunday and the homework wasn't done. And this is, he's with them on the Friday to the Sunday. So now, you know, they're getting dropped off at six o'clock on a Sunday and I'm struggling for three hours to hustle and get caught up on the homework. Um, he used to park up across the street when he did not have them. 
for where we were living and like just watch what we were doing when we were coming and going. So it was a very uneasy feeling and he was an abusive person. So, um, you know, I was scared. I was genuinely scared when I would see his truck parked up across the street, I'd be freaking out like what this guy would was capable of anything. He was the kind of person that I was afraid that I would see him on the news in an accident, killing himself and my children. That's how I lived in fear when he had them on those weekends. And knowing that he was doing this intoxicated and under the influence of marijuana as a combination, I was very scared because my children would come back and, and say things. They would talk and you'd hear and you're like, oh my God, but what could I have done? They had told me about a weekend that they, the weekend before that he came, he drove them drunk, like drunk to the point where he should not have driven. And he got into the truck with my two children in the back and he was drunk. The beer was in the truck. He was driving with the alcohol in his hand. I went to the police station one weekend um, and I said, I don't feel comfortable sending my children. Things were getting worse with his drinking. And they said to me, ma'am, if you feel like your children's life is in danger, then don't send them. But just know that if there's a court order that has said that he can have them, then it's his weekend. So literally the police was saying, in order to put a stop to what was happening, I had to let my children go and risk that they would get into an accident and only then would the judge step in. And what do you do as a mother when the law in this country is saying that the children have the right to be with the father and vice versa, and you know that you don't know if you're going to get a knock on your door and that's going to be the police to ID their bodies. I could not have imagined my life without my children. That's all I had left at that point, right? This is a time when I was not working in all of that. So I have nothing but my children. Finally, Melissa was recovering from depression overcoming the constant fear for her life and her children's life and trying against all odds to make a new, fuller, safer and better future for herself and her kids with her new partner in life, A. But her ex-husband was not happy with everything he was hearing. So now I'm dating and, uh, and the kids would go over and they loved my, my husband at that time. I, you know, I were dating, they loved him because he loved children. So they bonded with him extremely well. And he did things, took us to places that they've never been to in their life. So, you know, they were used to a materialistic world. Now they're getting to go to like the parks and the marinas. And we did a lot of things together because again, this was the time I was not working. So we're bonding. And so they would go when they were there on those weekends and they would be talking about, you know, this guy and, and all these good things. And the, their father was not happy. He was not happy that they were happy, that they were happy with my new uh, person in my life. And he couldn't handle that. And so one day we were at the time, you know, it's my boyfriend. He's now my husband. We were at his apartment. And I remember this particular day very well. He was cooking and uh, the kids was with me, of course. And uh, my daughter, because it was, they were getting ready for their weekend. So it was a Friday. And so they were supposed to be picked up that evening. I said, are you taking them? What time? Da, da, da. He said, I don't want them. And I said, what? He says, no, I don't want them. You can have them. You and A, you know, are keeping them busy. And, and I think you guys can keep them. I said, well, you're going to be the one to tell your daughter that because she was very close to him. I'm not going to be the one to tell her that. And I said, what do you mean? So was it like just this weekend? Was it permanent? Like, what was he thinking? So he swore at me and he hung up the phone. And I said to her, call your dad and ask him if he's going to pick you guys up this weekend. Because 
I would have been the bad one if I told her, right? And so she called and she says, dad, are you, are you going to pick us up this weekend? Mom wants to know what time. And he said, nope, nope, I don't want you guys. And he said to her at nine years old, no, I don't want you. No, I don't want you. And no, I'm not picking you guys up. Tell your mother to F off. That's what he had told my daughter. Hung up the phone. He called her a bad name and he hung up the phone. She was devastated. She was devastated. And so we were there to console her. You know, A and I are consoling her and we dealt with that and we got over that hurdle. That was the last their father ever saw them for years. Six years have passed since that day and Melissa's life was piecing back together. She now had her new career in hospitality that she was very successful in. She was happily remarried and had, for a time, the better life she had dreamed of. With a fighting spirit, Melissa also took the opportunity during these years to open a side business in the wedding industry. With the support of her husband, A, and full custody of her daughter, V, and son, M, they were now one wholesome family. And Melissa now felt like she had the capacity to concentrate on her career and business to keep this family happily together. But everyone makes mistakes. Looking back with 2020 hindsight, Melissa is the first to admit when and where she may have made mistakes in her decisions as a parent. Still recovering from the brink of homelessness and a negative cash balance, Melissa went into overdrive to make sure her kids could forget about their rough patch, were always happy and never felt deprived. Like millions of others, one of the ways she believed she was keeping her children happy was by giving them whatever they wanted, especially her daughter, V. had a very busy career, very demanding career. And, and I will admit now, when I look back at a time when my daughter needed me, my career was always first. And now that I look back, I think I, I probably had my priorities a little mixed up. Having the career that I had, I didn't know, um, you know, I didn't want to make certain sacrifices. I've missed a lot of my kids' life. I missed their kindergarten graduations, you know, certain meetings. I couldn't make it because there was demands at, at the hotel that I managed. So, you know, that's kind of where it was struggling. I think she, she grew up saying that I didn't love her. I got divorced, eventually I got remarried, and through all of that, it was the one constant she would say is that, you don't love me, you never loved me. She would be rebellious, very rebellious. She would say the most hurtful things. I hate you, um, you're a horrible mother. I mean, it was, it was words that pierced me. And in those days when she would say these things to me, I would cry. I, I took it very, very tough. When she was 13, she started giving us a little bit of rebellion. She was enrolled in a very high-end prestigious school in Brampton. It was an all-girls Catholic school. It was ranked number seven in all of Ontario in schools. Got her enrolled in there. We were very happy. I thought it would be the best place for her. There was good opportunity. There was rules and expectations from going into a Catholic school compared to the public school, or at least so I perceived. So she entered into grade nine. She had trouble making friends in grade nine. 
and I think she made it through to grade 10. And she kept getting into trouble at school repeatedly for silly, silly things. Like she would skip school, go to the pizza store across the street. She started, that's where she started experimenting with marijuana. Mm -hmm. And this is at 13 years old, 13, 14 years old. Um, the friends she had were from very well-to-do families. They were ethnic friends. And um, her friends, from the story she used to come home and tell us, she was comparing herself to the other girls in her school. I had a decent career at the time, but I didn't believe in showering my kids with everything. My daughter did get, she got a lot of brand name clothes. She, you know, she did have a lot of privileges not privileges and freedom in the terms of what a 13-year-old in this country would have or what her friends had. We didn't let her have sleepouts at people's homes we didn't know. We didn't let her go out. We didn't let her go to the parties. You know, she was just 13. She was just a teenager. So we didn't think that that was the, the time. She wasn't ready for that. As a parent, I thought she would earn things and, and earn, you know, the privilege to go out and earn the privilege to have a cell phone and things like that. One day she was caught in the school bathroom with her friends. Somehow her belly button got pierced. Um, and so eventually she got expelled from that school. When I went in there, they said to me that, look, we cannot babysit your daughter. We're not here to babysit children. We run a school. We have, you know, how many kids to look after? And uh, they were like, I can't do this anymore. And so she got expelled. How did that make you feel, uh, having that constant pressure on you as a parent, where you're trying to do your best? And children, all children are difficult at different stages. How did, uh, how did it make you feel with that difficulty constantly hitting you? I think it made me feel like a failure. Um, I constantly, for years, my daughter and I struggled. We did not have the love mother-daughter relationship that you would think most mothers have or that I see other mothers have. We, we did do the odd coffee date, you know, like go out to Starbucks, um, things like that. Um, because I'm thinking I'm working, I'm providing, we go, you know, to Buffalo to shop, you're coming with shopping carts full of clothes. I'm talking one trip to Burlington Go Factory was like $1,300, $1,500, nothing less, like big brands, you know, things that a 13 year old doesn't need, but I was buying. Well, if you had to go to a cocktail party, you need a blazer, you need a dress, you know, there was stuff she always had, she had too much. She had a lot of stuff. I always gave in to my daughter's tantrums and she threw a lot of tantrums. Um, her brother would remind me how we would go to a store and he wouldn't get the jackets he wanted because I was more spending time with her in the clothing department. I didn't see that at the time. I was giving in to her and she would throw tantrums if she didn't get stuff. So, you know, you're like, okay, fine, here, have it. Um, things like that. Not realizing I was giving into this this monster that I was creating. And so... She got uh, expelled from the school and, uh, and then it was, okay, well, we have to get her into another school. So I was pretty angry, very upset, very hurt. And she said, well, mom, why can't you get me into another Catholic school? And I said, no, no, it's, you know, I'm spending like eight, eight six, seven hundred dollars on uniforms for one semester. Um, then you have the fees and no, I'm not doing that. No, you had a chance. You had the best chance you had. Not many girls got accepted into the school you did and you blew it. So no, you're going to go to public school and you're going to defend yourself. You're going to figure out a way how to make it work. And I thought it would have been a lesson that she could have learned from. I felt like it would have been a consequence for her. So I remember the day very distinctly driving into that school and her getting upset with me. She was almost in tears, begging not to register her in that school. And part of me wanted to give in and say, okay, fine, let's take you to the other Catholic school. But then I said, no, we're going to do this again. So I, I didn't give in. And I, I said, I'm not, I'm not going to fall for it. So I said, no. And we I took her in there. 
And then um, <clears throat> she said, mom, they're going to, uh, you know, I'm going to get eaten alive in this school. And I said, well, you had a chance. So we go in, we go to the principal's office, get her registered. She's back enrolled in school. Not too long after that, she was in trouble again. Um, you know, the, the grades was dropping. And the one constant thing that she was told throughout her entire school life, even in kindergarten, is that she had potential. Every one of her teachers would look back and they would say to us that she had big potential. She got very good grades. She was good at her work. She was like high 80s, low 90s, like she was mid 90s. So she, if she applied herself, and this is what her teachers would say, if she applied herself, she would do very well. And she was very crafty, very smart, very street smart. But she didn't apply it because she got wrapped up in the glitz and glamour of the world, of her friends, of this is what my friends is getting to do and I'm not getting to do that. And she wanted to do that. And, uh, and so anyways, fast forward that and, uh, and she's in the school for a little while. I think she didn't last the entire semester and, um, she ended up dropping out. Um, she wanted to go to a party that weekend and I said, nope, you're, you're just 16. We don't know who these people are. No, um, no, you're not getting to go to this party. I get up one Friday morning. I think it was, we wake up. And we're getting, you know, going about a routine. And this is in the morning, you know, the typical routine, right? And I thought there's her and her brother, myself, and my husband would already have been off at work. And I, I, I don't see her. It's like, okay, maybe she's outside and she's not home. So I thought never in a million years would I thought she would have run away from home. Never. That morning, Melissa woke up to the worst nightmare for a mother. Her 16-year-old daughter, V was missing, and Melissa's life was about to turn upside down all over again. Where you said you woke up and yes. uh, she wasn't there. So I wanted to ask you, as a parent myself, I think that's any parent's worst nightmare. When you wake up and you just, your, your child is not in the bed safe, safe and sound where you put them last. What went through your mind that morning? I, I, that morning, I don't specifically remember the feelings I felt because I think I've buried it so deep. I don't remember. I get a letter on my console table and I thought, oh my God, you know what? And I could, I didn't know what to think about it, but she sent her letter to me, uh, which I kept said something to the effect of mom, you're very stressed. And I think you need some time to yourself. I'm going out with my friends this weekend and I will see you on Monday. Mom, please don't cry. Don't miss me. Something to that effect. And I was like, what is this? You know, what is going on? And from what I understand now, because we've, we've had, you know, our relationship after that, she says that she didn't plan on leaving for good. She was going to a party with her friends and she knew she would not have been allowed to go to the party. So she decided to run away for the weekend, make it seem like, mom, you're in a bad place. You need to think about if you love me or not. And, and I'll be back on Monday and you tell me if you still want me as your daughter. Something to that was in her mind. Kind of like scare you and get what she wanted at the same time. Yes. Something okay. to that effect. She never came back the Monday. She never came back. On the Monday, I get a call from her father for the first time in six years saying that she's at his place she's okay because i for the whole weekend we reported it to the police that night there was supposed to be a missing report going out so the father called and said you know she's here she's safe i was stunned 
I was stunned because there was a reason why I just took you back to those parts of our life. Because any mother having their children go through that, you'd be like, hang on here. All of this, and you're going to run to how? How? How is that playing out in all of this? But I think in her mind, because she was so close to him, I think she had this void that she missed. She was at a point in her life where she wanted to close that void. And she thought the father would have given her the love she missed for all these six years. And so she stayed. And, and also, again, after it all happened, she eventually said to me that she thought I would have never let her come back home because I was a strict parent. So the plan originally was she would say she was going for the weekend, but she was supposed to come back the Friday night. She ended up not. And she thought, OK, there's no way mom will ever take me back or let me back in the house. So now I'm screwed. I have no choice. And that's why she turned to him. It wasn't that she intentionally ran away to go to his place, but she thought, OK, might as well. So she stays with him. She says, I said, come home, please come home. She didn't want to come home. She says, no, I'm happy here. This is my dad. Um, you know, and, and I had to accept that. It was very difficult for me to accept. It felt like a slap in the face because we, I've done so much for her in my eyes, right? And uh, no, she wanted to stay there. So her brother was with me and now she's living with her father. This was a fall, I believe. So it might've been around... October. She was with him for a couple of months, if that long. In that time, she's now rekindling or reconnecting with her paternal grandparents, her, because she has, they had, no one was, was, like she was in contact with no one. So, you know, she reopened a lot of relationships and so forth. So, you know, at this point, her and I, I think we would communicate. I started talking to the father a little bit, you know, more just to connect what's going on. I would speak to her aunt just to know what was in her head. When is she going to come home? Her aunt had said to me that when she's ready, she will, you know, whatever the case may be. So Christmas rolls around and she calls me crying. She wants to come home. And I'm thinking, okay, out of the blue. I've just adjusted to life without you. I've just dealt with these emotions and now you want to come home. Yes, my dad put me out and I want to come home. And she was devastated. So we let her come home. This is what I protected them from all those years, those six years, because I knew I, he was a very ignorant, arrogant person. And apparently she wanted to swim in his condo swimming pool that night, particular night. And he said, no. And she continued to swim. And he said, look, you need to come upstairs. It's 10 o'clock. And she felt like she wanted to swim. And because of that, they had an altercation in the apartment. And his live-in wife had to sort of separate them. And he said to her, get out. Get the F out. And he, you know, said a lot of bad words. And I don't care. Get out. And this was, I believe, either Christmas morning or New Year's morning. It was on one of the holidays, either the Christmas morning or the New Year's morning, that her biological father that she thought would have accepted her with open arms said, I'm done. Like he was going to hit her and, and, you know, it's like, get out. And she had nowhere to go. So she calls and says, I want to come home. So I said, okay. And I said to her, tell me where. And, you know, okay, we'll come get you. And I think we went the same day or the next day. I think this happened late at night. So the next morning she packed everything up. We went to their place. I waited downstairs. We loaded everything into the vehicle and we came back home and we started to build again. This time when we came home, at this point, she's got a boyfriend and, you know, the, she's sneaking out at night. And now I'm having to deal with this. 
so she starts sneaking out at night. We said we wanted to meet the boy's parents to know who this, you know, who they are, who's the family. And so the mother comes home and that conversation did not go very well. One night, it was late at night. I get a call maybe one o'clock in the morning saying, I'm going to the hospital. I need my health card. I said, excuse me, you're supposed to be in your bed. No, I, I need my health card. And she starts acting out with me on the phone. And I said, excuse me, you know, I don't feel very well. I did not tell you to go leave the house. I am not coming downstairs in the winter, in the freezing cold to give you your health card. You should have thought of that before you left. And so she says to me, I overdosed and I need to go to the hospital and I need my health card. I did not give her the health card. I actually thought she was bluffing. She goes to the hospital. I guess they take her without the health card. She comes back in the morning about six o'clock in the morning and she's on the porch in the freezing cold and she's calling me to open the door. What do I do? I open the door. She comes in, runs straight into her washroom and locks the door with our house phone. And she's calling, I don't know who she's talking to with the phone. And I says, you need to come off the phone. We need to talk. And she didn't want to talk. And with that, she called the police and said, I don't feel safe here. I want to leave home. I don't feel safe here. The police comes and said, ma'am, she's 16 years old. She's legally entitled to go wherever she wants. I had to just step back and do nothing. I had to do nothing. They couldn't tell me where she was going. I was forced to give her her passport, her ID, and they took her to the boyfriend's house, which they didn't tell me at the time. And I don't know where, but you're taking my daughter somewhere where you say it's safe. I don't know where she's going. And I had to let it happen. So I had to let go of the control of being a parent and, and being able to make decisions for her. So she leaves and I don't hear anything from her for a few months. And so she's on her own for about a year, maybe two years. So by now I hear bits and pieces from relatives and other people. So I kind of know, I know she's alive. And that was the one thing for those two years since she was on her own, Every time I would see on the news, you know, 17-year-old girl body found, 17-year-old girl missing, I would, I, yeah, they were the hardest. I would not, I would hold my breath until I found out from someone that she was okay. Until somebody said, no, no, she posted on Instagram, she's all right. I was like, are you sure? My husband and I would call each other to, to wait for the description. Nope, it was a Caucasian girl. Okay, it's not her. That was for about two years of my life. Two years, two years of emotional and mental anguish, not knowing if her child was dead or alive, waiting for family and friends to confirm her well-being, waiting for police descriptions on missing or deceased teens to confirm it was not her precious V that was lost forever. You would think this has to be rock bottom for any human being, even for a mother. But Melissa was now tougher than she was before. As much as she was hurting for whatever V was going through, she knew she still had her son and husband who needed her. So Melissa refused to let herself sink back into that state of depression. She distracted herself by throwing her attention and energy into making her side hustle business a full-time job. She left her career in the hospitality industry and moved her business into her own office with a studio. Even while things were looking good in her professional life, unfortunately for Melissa, things got worse in her personal life before they got better and the emotional trauma was back to haunt her. 
that difficult time in those two years where you had no idea whether she was alive or fine or whether she was dead in a ditch somewhere it's so scary to even say that or think about it how did you manage those emotions and that constant fear after everything that you've been through with her how did you manage those two years again um <laughs> you can probably hear my voice cracking um i did not <laughs> Those two years were, <clears throat> sorry, were at that time what I thought was the most difficult. Um, not knowing that there were more difficult years to come. So I think it strained my marriage. There were many, many sleepless nights and um, for those two years, it was a lot of emotions, a lot of guilt, um, a lot of um, wanting to tell her, come home, but at the same time, wanting her to face the consequences. So there was a lot more mental anguish. There was a lot more that I was struggling with in my mind, all of the times where she would say when she did come. So she must have come and left about three times at this point. You know, like, come, she'd live for a couple of months and she'd be gone again in my mind, there was a lot of struggles to wrap around how this was my fault. Many, many years I blamed myself for it. I would recall back the days we had the fights, not physical fights, but arguments. And uh, the words that she would say would be what would echo in my head for those two years. I hate you. You're the worst mother. You've never been there for me. Those were the things she would constantly, she knew how to push my buttons. By God, she knew how to push it. And she did. There were many nights that I would be in her room, just on the desk. Many years I kept her stuff. And so that I think was when my insomnia started. There'd be nights that I'd be in her room, probably cleaning, reorganizing or something like that. And I remember one night I found one of her books and I opened it and there were notes in there, like her diary, her journal. And I thought everyone was asleep in our house, my son and my husband. It was probably two o'clock in the morning. So, you know, I found one of her books and I'd go through and, and I, I was crying. I didn't realize how loud it was. And my son and my husband was asleep. So, they, you know, I'm thinking no one's hearing me. And it was a long while after my husband said, oh, I heard you last night. Are you okay? Or he came in, I believe he came in the room and he asked, are you okay? And I was like, oh, I'm thinking I'm, I'm privately... At this point, um, it was just dealing with, you know, how can I help her? How did I fail? Um, and so that went on. And there were times that we were talking, like we would talk to each other via WhatsApp because she didn't have a working phone because she's not working at this point. Okay. She's on her own. She's holding down the odd job. She's on Ontario work. She's not really making a life for herself. She left home, but she's just there. She's partying. I'm hearing from people that she has an apartment she's got people in and out of her apartment she's with all these different there's all these guys and girls coming in so i'm assuming she's doing drugs she's now chronic marijuana smoker she might have been selling it at that point um so that was what she was doing and so there was the odd time she would check in so i'd know okay she's alive so i don't have to worry it's not her this time i think there was partings in the clouds a couple of times but then 
then she would come around and I would realize she was the same. She was, she had not changed. She hadn't learned her lesson. She was, had not changed. And so at this point, because she'd come and left so many times and on a couple of the occasions she called the police on us, it was to a point where we're like, we don't want her back at home because you're going to call the cops on us again, right? And this is where after all of the years of her, her ups and downs, I couldn't tell her what to do anymore. And I didn't want to, because now, you know, you've got three or four years of, I could have done this. I should have done this. I should have let her go out. I should have, how many regrets, right? Maybe if I did this differently, you know, it was so many years of that. So at that point I, I stopped trying to be a mother, you know, and I was just a person. Mm-hmm. So as much as it hurt, it was, no, we can't go through that again. Right. How many times would I pack her stuff up? Um, and so a couple of years goes by, and we're just having these conversations. So now she shows up to my, my studio that I had at the time. I'm now working for myself as an entrepreneur. And um, she came to that studio. She introduced me to the boyfriend. And I did not approve of him. It wasn't my choice. But this was her choice. And so this is a time where they were homeless. She didn't say to me that they were homeless. But they were basically living out of their car. So she shows up. She brings them. They're coming around. We had a job in Oakville on this particular day and she's skinny, like she's a size zero. And when she came, she looked, she was a size zero, but she looked like a skeleton. You could tell she was not eating. I don't know what they were doing. And she's not telling me this because how do you tell the mother that you ran away from, that you hurt so much that guess what, mom, life really sucks without you, but hey, (laughs) so she didn't want to admit that either. And If I knew she was coming, I would pack extra food just because a mother knows, right? A mother knows. And so whatever I would have, I would sacrifice my food and I'd say, here, did you eat lunch? And I would give her. And I could tell she was so grateful to have a decent meal. And the boyfriend, the boyfriend would eat her food. He would be eating out the entire lunch not caring that she should have this meal. Now, this is my daughter and I'm giving you my lunch and you should eat the food. I want you to be full. So we go on and then I said, okay, I know she's not working. And I said, we have a job. And if you guys want to come, you can work. You know, well, I wanted her, but he, he came as a package and I was glad to have her around. And every time I would have that hope that she's changed and it'll be different this time, every time. And so we had this job and I said, I'll pay you like a regular employee, right? So come and you'll work casual labor. So we went to Oakville and we were decorating. And that day when she came to visit, she was, she was sick. She was not feeling well, but didn't say anything. And it didn't clue into me at that moment. So we got in my car and we're driving to Oakville and she says, can you take the heat off? She was cranky. She was cranky, moody, irritable. So we get there and uh, the time is running out for the job and she keeps leaving the work. And she's, at this point, she's violently puking. The boyfriend is inside with me decorating and I could see her puking and sitting on the step. And I looked at him and I said, is she pregnant? And he just looked at me and I said, how far along is she? He said, you need to ask her that. He did not say no. And that's when I... I don't remember the emotion, but my stomach probably dropped in my hand and I said, okay. The shock of finding out her 17-year-old daughter was now pregnant took a few days to sink in. Melissa chose not to confront V about it directly, after years of knowing that this would not help the situation any further. V was now homeless, malnourished and pregnant, and Melissa knew 
she had to play her cards right if she ever wanted a chance to save her daughter and her future grandchild. So I didn't say a word. She ended up being so sick that she had to leave that day. So she sat out in the van. She sat out to get fresh air. We came back home to Brampton and they took their car to leave. And I didn't say anything to her that I knew. And three days later, she calls me on the phone because I guess by now she knows I know, but she doesn't know how to tell me because she knows that's not something I would have encouraged or necessarily accepted, right? So we spoke. She said, well, I know he told you. And I said, yes. I said, do you know what you're getting yourself into? She said, yes. So I said, you're only 17. Do you understand having a baby is diapers, clothes, sleepless nights? It's your baby, not mine. And uh, do you understand the responsibility that comes with the child? And she said, yes. I said, you need to decide what you're going to do, you know, what you're going to do about it. And I didn't necessarily mean to end it. I meant you have to decide whatever the decision was going to be, right? There's adoption, there's, you know, whatever it was, right? Um, I didn't give her suggestions. All I said was, it's your body. You need to know what you're going to do. And if you can handle this, I knew that they were homeless. They had no money and pregnant with the child. Um, and she said to me, mom, I can't do that to my body. I cannot live with putting up my child for adoption and I cannot live with killing my child. And I said, okay. That's all I said. So that was the answer saying, no, I'm keeping my baby. And I never ask a question after that. That was the last I've asked her about choices. And every time I saw her after that, it was always making sure she had, you know, yogurt, making sure she had food, whenever she would visit. So she would visit me at my location and I would make sure that whenever time she was with me for that little one hour, she was there that I, you know, are you eating or are you, you know, stuff like that. So I accepted that she was now going to have this baby. And now I'm trying to be a mother and a grandmother to be. She had had no prenatal care or anything at this point. And she's about, by this time, I think she's about a good three months. Once a mother, always a mother. Melissa, gathering the kind of strength only a mother could muster, rose to the challenge. Pushing aside all their arguments and hurtful exchanges from the past, Melissa worked hard on trying to mend a new relationship with V over this pregnancy. She tried her best to help V step into the shoes of being a responsible mother, helping her take care of herself, proper nourishments, doctor appointments, and everything else. Although V was following Melissa's guidance with her pregnancy, she refused to go back home to live with her mother. Instead, V chose to move in with her baby's father's family in Cambridge, Ontario, 75 kilometers away from her own family and her mother in Brampton. By now, Melissa knew better than to start questioning V's choices at this critical time and risk pushing her away all over again. So Melissa continued to support V any way she could. So then they move into his parents' place and they're not in agreement with her pregnancy, his mother and his stepfather. And she's now about six months pregnant. All this while, like she told you at about three months and now three to six months, she's living with the boyfriend, but she was still visiting you. 
Like once every couple of weeks, I'd see her. We would talk like on WhatsApp, stuff like that. Um, they were bouncing around in different shelters. Um, now, during this time, I did offer her to come home, but just her. And she wanted that if she comes home, it's her and the boyfriend. And I said, no, I don't know him. I don't know this guy really, right? And I said, no, I'm not going to be bringing him into our home. You can come home. And she refused. She preferred to stay at a shelter because of her love for him. And so they bumped around in a couple of shelters. And then his mother agreed. So they went there to live. He was working, I think, at the time, but part-time odds and ends. Nothing that was really going to pay the bills and support a family. And so now they moved to Cambridge. They're living with his mother and his stepfather, and they're there living in a room. This particular Sunday, we were going, we said, we arranged that we were coming up to meet his parents. You know, we're going to be grandparents, and we're just going to meet the family. We've never met them before. And we said, we're heading up. So we cooked food, what was her favorite. So we took a Tupperware, decent enough for more than one person to share because we were going where she's staying with the family. So we took enough that they can have a little bit, right? And so we, we get there and as we pull up in front of their house, the mother had just pulled into the driveway with my daughter in the car and her children in the car. Because I remember my daughter waving excitedly because at this point she hadn't seen us for let's say a month or so. Like she was now, you know, all the way in Cambridge. I'm running my business in Brampton, so I couldn't take time off. And I don't think I really knew what was going on. I'm assuming they're just living there. And she made it seem it was, it was all right. You know, she didn't say exactly what was going on. And so she was very excited and she was waving and we're like, you know, I was excited. So we pull in front on the, on the street and we park. And of course we're getting out of the car. It was, my mother was with us this day. She was visiting. So it's my mother, my husband, my son and so we come out and we're walking you know up into the to the driveway and they were out of the minivan and, and in their house in very quickly and I was like where did they go right because they just pulled up into the yard and so we go up to the front door and uh, the door is locked now they saw us they saw us and that was my first sort of okay that's kind of strange if if I just came home and I know you were visiting me I would come in the house just close the door maybe the air conditioner or something but I would close the door but I wouldn't lock it so we go up to the door and uh, the door is locked as if no one had just walked in the door 30 seconds ago and I ring the doorbell and uh, took a, another 30 seconds the door opens and it was not V it was the mother and uh, and so the mother opens the door with a very unwelcoming face, unwelcoming tone of voice in the manner that it was, what do you want? Who are you? So I said, hi, I, uh, I'm V's mother. And um, they said, oh, okay. Uh, yes, you're here to see V, right? Okay, come in. And uh, it was not warm and fuzzy whatsoever. We stepped into the home. I introduced her to my, my mom, my husband, my son. Were they expecting you? Yes. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. Um, we go in and then V and, uh, and the, the boyfriend came and, uh, you know, V at this point is so excited to see us, but for some strange reason, it seemed as though she was hesitant to express her emotion. So I felt a little uneasy because you could sense it was tense there. They said, oh, come have a seat. So we sit down. The family is sitting there, the mother, her husband, and they have two daughters and all the family is there. So V comes, V hugs us, V hugs my mom, you know, hugs all of us. And, and she's sitting next to me. And I said, here's food for you. And there's extras you can share. And she said, oh, okay. And she opens it, sees what's in there and gets all excited. 
Um, and at this point, it's uncomfortable. It's like cutting ice. It's very tense. It's not, you know, how you would typically meet someone. And so we sat there and then I think the mother led the conversation. We were very quiet. We were just observing what was going on. The mother led the conversation and started off by saying, this is happening. They're having a baby. They're not ready. They don't agree that she should have the baby. And at this point, she's six and a half months pregnant. And the mother is saying she should not have the baby. Um, she doesn't know what they're doing. She starts telling us about her son and how she just took them to see an apartment and she hopes they get the apartment. The mother is now telling us she's given them by Saturday to move out. So she didn't even tell me about the cost. She says, I just took them to see an apartment. I know the people. I can help them to get the place. I said, okay. So, you know, we start having conversations, right? The first time I'm actually properly getting to know this guy and his family. And so I said to him, I said, so what's going on? Are you working? I said, is V, are you looking for work? I know it's going to be hard for someone to want to hire you. You're six months pregnant. You may not get a job. I asked the, the, the boy, the boyfriend, I said, you know, are you working? And he said, yes, he was working at a local restaurant as a busboy. And I said, okay, what are your hours like? And he was working part-time not enough money to raise a family. And I asked him, I said, so you're working part-time, you're bringing in not a lot of money. And based on what you're telling me, I said, how much is this apartment? And he says, well, it's about 900 a month. It's two bedrooms. I says, why do you guys need two bedrooms? If you don't have money, you can, you could settle with like a bachelor apartment. And so the baby won't have its own room in the beginning, but it's better than nothing. Right. You're going to get this place. You're going to move out on Saturday. But from what you're telling me, your income doesn't match your expenditure and it's not going to work. So then in no time, you're going to end up back on the street again. So why are you guys doing this? Um, and I looked at the mother and I said, well, I don't agree with this decision. It's not my decision to make, but I don't agree with this. I think they're walking into something that's not going to happen. And the mother was pretty much saying they did not have a place to live after that weekend, the next weekend. And she gave them a few days. And she says, well, why don't you take them to your house? I said, I will gladly take my daughter back. She can move back anytime she wants. We will take care of her. And I know it sounds at this point, it sounds hypocritical of me that she doesn't know my daughter, but she's taking my daughter in and I don't know her son, but I refuse to take him in. But I literally don't know him. And if you looked at him, he was a very gangster type looking, you know, pants off the ass. Um, you know, you look at this guy and you're like, oh, my God, what does she think? What is my daughter thinking? Right. Um, I mean, any mother can look past and tell you what's a failure or not. Right. The kids just don't listen to us until they learn for themselves. And I said to the mother, I have no problem, but you know, she can come back home anytime she wants, but not him. Then the stepfather walks into the living room at that time or that little family room and starts speaking in a very disrespectful, loud tone and said, this is exactly why they should not be having this child. This is exactly why I told V she needs to have an abortion. And he starts at her face. She starts crying. He almost looks like he's ready to punch my daughter. And I'm sitting there in the middle of all of this, having to swallow what's going on. And I wanted to just take my daughter and walk out of there. But I did not. Because I know she would not have wanted to come with me. And I, she just was so blindly in love. I glanced over at my mother. And I could see my mother's eyes welled with tears. And my mother is a very quiet person. She would hide her emotions. And to look at the, the distraught on my mother's face said a lot to me. 
let me tell you, that day, my daughter looked like a malnutritioned child. She did not look like she was six months pregnant. She had no stomach, none, no tummy. Maybe she looked like she had too much yogurt that they like just a little puff, but there was no belly at six months pregnant, no belly. And she looked like she was so stressed. She was crying. Um, you know, and I, I wanted to desperately hug her and say, come home. But she didn't want to go without him. And she was desperate to build a life for her boyfriend and her child. So it's done. We leave. We ended nicely, peacefully. And we leave to come home. We said, okay, it's time we go home. They've not once offered us in the one hour that we sat there a glass of water. Nothing. Before we left, the mother said to me, oh, and by the way, I just thought I should mention to you, when my son goes to work, I just wanted to let you know that I've asked your daughter to leave the house and find something to do in the area. There's the Y, there's the library, there's so many things to do when the son goes to work. And I looked at him and I said, what time do you work? And he says, oh, I have to go just now. I usually work five or six o'clock in the evening till 10, 30, 11 at night. This is in winter, let me tell you. This is in winter. When I looked at my daughter's shoes that day, I says, why are you wearing that? Don't you have better shoes? She says, this is all I have. It was like a summer flats. So she was asking a six and a half month old pregnant girl in the city of Cambridge where there's no buses and she has no money to walk 20 minutes to keep herself busy so she's out of the woman's house. This is how this woman was treating my daughter. I'm sorry, I have never once disrespected her son. Whenever he came to our house, never did I disrespect. It's not that I didn't like him. I, I never disrespected him because I would treat other people's children the way you should treat mine. I could have assessed him and knew that he had issues long before it was discovered that there was issues with him. I just knew something just wasn't right with him and I could tell that. So, you know, I kept a little bit of a distance, but even though I knew that, even though I knew my daughter was in a somewhat abusive relationship, I never disrespected him, never. Because he was living with my daughter. Why would I do that so he could take it out on her? And so she said that to me and that's what we left her house thinking of so we left we got into my husband's truck and we started driving back from cambridge to brampton and on our way back and we we drive past the roundabout and i saw the community center and i said oh this is a community center she makes the come to in my mind i was registering how far that walk was in winter six and a half months pregnant with no proper winter gear um, my daughter was probably so embarrassed at how she felt she failed that she probably didn't want to say, I need help. So we're driving home, we get on the 401, and we're very quiet in the car. No one's talking to each other because we're all in shock. And I said, I have a massive migraine and I'm feeling nauseous. I need to get something to eat. Please, let's find something to eat. And my mother says in the back of the truck, I don't understand how you guys could even eat food after what just happened. And I said, I feel so sick. I'm not hungry, but I feel like I have to put something or I will puke. And we start talking. We start digressing the situation. And as we're talking about it, as we're saying it out loud, my husband says, and this is after everything we've been through, the ups and the downs, my husband says, call her and tell her pack her clothes. We're coming for her now. By this point, we're already in Milton. He said, tell her we're coming. We pulled off. We pulled off at a Wendy's. And I called her and I says, you need to pack your clothes. We're coming for you. 
And she didn't, she said, no, 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 I can't. And I said, listen, this is no longer about you. We do not like what we just left. I cannot handle the fact that this is what you're living in. We looked at that man almost punch you. They're practically insisting you get an abortion, which is going to put your life in danger. And it's not even legal at six and a half months. You're killing a child. I said, nope, we're coming back for you. We're done. So we had to kind of twist the truth a bit for her to come or she would not have left. And I said, look, you said you just need to get to Brampton and you and the baby's father so he can get a job and accessibility and transit and all that. Okay, you come away first. Let's get you nourished and looked after. It's not about you. It's about the baby you're carrying. And you need to think about that child, not yourself anymore. When you come, he can eventually figure stuff out and, and find his way and get an apartment and so forth. And so she said, okay, you know, it took a lot of convincing. We pulled aside we got some food, not that we ate, but you know, we were able to, you know, I was able to contain my nauseousness and we turned back and head back to Cambridge. And we said, pack your bags, don't tell the mother, don't see anything. So she literally almost ran away from that house. We said, don't let them know anything, Get, make sure you have your important documents. So we got back there in about another 20 minutes or so and she and the boyfriend was bawling their eyes out. I, we felt sad. We felt emotional for them because I could feel the young love that they were feeling. They were crying. He was loading all her stuff up into the truck. We loaded what we could and then we headed out of there. And they pretty much was like, okay, we'll see you at some point. So she came home. We brought her home. She, she settled back into her old room again. And at this point, I start nourishing her. I start making sure she's having milk. She's having yogurt. She's eating because she wasn't eating. She was so used to not getting fed in that house. She wasn't allowed in their kitchen. She wasn't allowed to, to have stuff. So her stomach was used to not eating. So I was like, I had to force her and I'd have to say, look, it's not about you. Eat it. I would stand there and force her. I was like, no, you, you're not moving till you eat this yogurt. So she started to get that plump look that, you know, that pregnancy glow eventually. By now it's almost Christmas and I get her into a prenatal doctor because she had no care at six and a half months. So we got her into an OB who would deliver her baby, got her hooked up, you know, with all that stuff because she had none of that. So now I'm, I'm like her primary. I'm taking her to all these appointments the boyfriend is still there. I think about a month later, he moves out and he moves to Brampton and he moves in with his father, his biological father. So he's with his biological father and he's, you know, he's wearing the odd jobs, right? Odd warehouse jobs. And she's with us and they're separate, but they're communicating. They see each other. They're going out, but they, at the end of the night, they have to separate. And so it was working. It was working. I, and then we were planning our trip back to the Caribbean, where we're from. And, uh, and we said, you know, we obviously, we weren't going to leave her alone. I'm like, it's your last time, you know, last chance to go. And so she must have not been, she was not eight months. So at this point, I think she's about seven months. So this is why we thought she was okay to fly. And so we booked the flight and we all went as a family and it was a wonderful, wonderful trip because she's missed out on so much for that, you know, couple of years when she was kind of bumping around on her own. And so we went back home. We spent Christmas with my parents. We had a wonderful time and she was living her life like a teenager and no one knew she was pregnant. She didn't have a tummy. She did not have anything resembling a, a ball whatsoever. So just before that week, we come back to Canada. She said, mom, we're going to start looking for an apartment. Um, you know, I don't want my child to grow up without a dad the way I did. Melissa had just succeeded in getting her daughter back. 
back to some semblance of normality. She was getting her healthier and happier, hopeful that things would improve for V and her unborn child. But once again, V had other plans. Although this time, it appeared that she wanted to regain her independence without further damaging her fragile relationship with her mother. Once again, Melissa understood, agreed and helped in any way she could. V's baby was born soon after, and the events that followed pushed Melissa into the darkest places she's ever been. We will cover all of that in part two of Melissa's experience. But I'd like to end this episode with a slightly happier tone. After everything that happened with V, Melissa and her husband have finally managed to get their daughter the help she's needed. Diagnosed with several mental health issues, and currently undergoing treatment, Melissa is glad to say that today she believes V is truly on the right track. With the right diagnosis, treatments, and Melissa's unwavering support, V has finally begun to understand everything that her mother has done and is still doing for her. She's now been diagnosed with multiple personality disorder, anxiety and severe depression. So she does have mental issues. Um, She has been in the hospital a few times to deal with it. She has been suicidal. She has a long road ahead of her and it's a battle. It's a long battle. She's got her ups and downs and, and we hope that she can put her life together. That's my one hope as a mother is that she can understand and put her life in order, build her life, build a steady life by herself, understand that she doesn't need a guy to to be that strong person. I've also learned to put aside what happened with my daughter in the sense of our relationship. I mean, it's it's strengthened my daughter's in my relationship when she's not living home because she does say like what we've done for them. And, and I mean, she's turning 21 in a couple of days. And when I said, what do you need for your birthday? And to hear my daughter, who's always been a materialistic person said, honestly, mom, I don't want anything. Now that I've gotten older, um, I just want you to keep being super mom. And I was like, what? The one who said I hate you how many times? Um, and to hear her now as she's growing up, to, to now acknowledge that, you know, I hear it so many times, mom, you were right. And I ask her, what do you want for your birthday? She actually says, can you rebirth me and let me do this all over again? And I said, not possible. I'm not going through a week of labor again, and it's not possible, but learn from your mistakes and build. So against all odds, and thanks to Melissa's constant support, V appears to be on a solid road to recovery. We'll end our episode here. I'd like to thank Melissa for so openly sharing this experience with us. It's been quite a roller coaster of emotions, and there's still more to come. Melissa hopes that sharing this experience helps other mothers and other teens learn from her mistakes. If you have any questions for Melissa about her experience, please email them to bulletproofwomenpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, everyone. Stay tuned for part two of Melissa's experience here on the Bulletproof Women podcast. Bye for now. Stay safe. And remember, you are bulletproof too.